1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 today. And uh, one phrase that we might hear more uh, this time of year than any other time of year is the phrase, the gift that keeps on giving. I meant positively, it could refer to a gift that continues to bring about positive consequences. Something that's able to, to be used over and over for seemingly added, added benefits. Meant negatively, or maybe usually sarcastically, this phrase might be used by maybe some parents. Uh, after the family members have gone home, left the house after Christmas Day, and everything's quieting down, they thought... But then they're little ones. They start to play with all those Christmas presents. You know, the ones that uncles and aunts brought. Maybe grandma and grandpa brought some presents. And then when they sit down, they rest. Maybe they got some hot chocolate or some coffee by the fire. And then all of a sudden, all the noises, the bangs, the crashes, the screeches, you name it. Whatever those noises might be. Those parents, eager for some peace and quiet, might refer to those presents as gifts that just keep on giving. Of course, though, we are worshiping together in, in church today, this last Sunday before Christmas, so we're thinking about this phrase in the positive sense. And as we think of the gift of Jesus Christ celebrating his birth this week, uh, we could certainly say that Christ is a gift from the Father that continues to bring great, great, good consequences. And in our passage today, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 12-17, the Apostle Paul here is sharing a bit of his own testimony. And in doing so, he shares several wonderful gifts that are all wrapped up in the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ himself. Because these gifts are all wrapped up in Christ, they don't just belong to the Apostle Paul. They belong to all who've put their faith and trust in him. So if you're here today and you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, these gifts are all yours as well. And if you're here today and you've never repented of your sin, you've never asked for forgiveness, for salvation, these gifts are offered to you today, as Christ is offered to you today. So if you're here and you've not put your faith in Christ, I ask you, plead with you, believe. Call on the Lord. As you hear of these gifts, receive them by faith and begin to enjoy all that God has graciously given to us in Christ So let's read through these verses again. Let's see if we can't find some great gifts of God's grace. Let's look and see just why Christ came into the world. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world... To save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. So here we go. Gift number one. Strength. In verse 12 it says, I thank him who has given me strength. And since this is Paul's testimony, we're going to look at a lot of of Paul's other writings and and the letters that he wrote in the New Testament, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit being God's words. But let's let's look and see further into Paul's testimony here. Uh, So 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, Paul shares this, that under the pressure of persecution, of many difficulties, even when other people were deserting him, he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Likewise, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, having learned how to be content in the easy times and in the difficult times, because his contentment wasn't wrapped up in easy or hard, but being consistently wrapped up in coming from the same place, that is Christ. He gives this testimony, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul shares his burden and desire to get rid of his own weakness. You feel that? We hate weakness, don't we? We don't want to have weakness. God, take this away from me. Make this stuff all easy. He called it his thorn in his flesh. It says in verse 9, But he, Christ, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly. In my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The strength of God that he gives isn't just for enduring hardships, however. It's certainly there, but his strength also enables us to grow, to see growth. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Christians, we're instructed to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean to work hard to get yourself saved, but we are saved by God's grace, and then from there we work it out, and we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's one of those, one of those passages where the Bible instructs us, work hard at this, pursue this, Strive for this. Oh, and by the way, the reason you can and the reason why you have any success is because God is working in you in the first place. All the work that you are in and the things that you succeed in are God's successes in you and through you. And in Ephesians 2.10, right after those great verses, we'll look at those later, 2.8 and 9, that tell us we're saved by grace through faith, through God's gift of faith. We're taught then in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we could say it this way. The strength that is this gift we receive through Christ is God's enabling, or we could say his empowering, of his people through Christ to endure hardships, to stand firm in our faith, and to change and grow in Christ's likeness. This is a gift. When persecution comes, uh, when our reputation takes a hit because we're trying to do the right thing, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, when those things happen, um, when we have things that we have to overcome, we might lose a loved one. Or how about when we have victory, when we have victory over a sin that we've been struggling to shake for a long time? 
Maybe we overcome our fears and, and do that thing we know God has commanded us, but we've struggled to persevere in. For all of those things, where did the strength come from? For all of those victories, it came through the grace of God through Christ. So gift one is strength. A gift number two is a fun one. Don't you love when you open a present on Christmas morning and there's two things inside? You open it up, you get one thing, and then there's like paper in there, and there's another one down there, and maybe your parents like, keep going, keep going. There's two in there, justification and sanctification. Verse 12 says, he judged me as faithful. He judged me as faithful. And there's a justification aspect of that and a sanctification aspect of that. So let's start with justification because we know this. We aren't entirely faithful. If God's just looking at me and uh, taking a, a judgment as to how I have been on my own, that's not what I would come out with. I wouldn't be faithful. We aren't entirely faithful. We've fallen short. But God in his grace has judged us as faithful. Justification means being declared not guilty by God as if we'd never sinned. And also then being declared righteous, the faithfulness of Christ put to our account. And God can judge us as faithful. Christ's perfect righteous record is gifted to us. We see in Romans 4 it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then here's where the sanctification part comes in. Because God has declared us faithful through the righteousness of Christ, that's the justification part, and now he is also making us faithful progressively, even now as we seek to serve the Lord uh, in this life. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul gave his judgment, it says, it was his judgment about marriage and singleness. He said this, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. God used Paul to share truth with people, having mercifully made Paul a trustworthy servant of Christ. But it didn't happen overnight, did it? Uh, God had to work this out in his life. God entrusted Paul and entrusts us as stewards in different capacities according to the truth of his word and with the truth of his word. Remember how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Uh, So we could say this, God's gift of justification and sanctification means that he has declared us righteous and is now doing the work of progressively making us righteous. Even though we've not been faithful, God has counted us as if we always have been. And in our lives right now, he is making us increasingly faithful and will complete the work that he started in us. Uh, This is a great gift that God has given. Uh, And we're just starting to see the fruits of this. Definitely a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, Number three, gift number three. Purpose. In order for us to grow in faithfulness, we need something to do. To be faithful in. And God has gifted us with that. He has given us purpose. In verse 12, Paul said that God was appointing him, appointing me to his service. So think about this now. Paul's purpose in life before he was saved was to move up the ranks among the Pharisees, to put a stop to the growth of the church, to show God and his peers just how zealous and great he was. 
And that purpose, the purpose of Paul's life, was in direct opposition to God. That's tough. Any purpose in life that we might conjure up on our own, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We need purpose. And we need to know what that purpose is. Because we want to be with God, right? We want to be serving him and, and seeing good come about. So we want to be appointed to service by God. We want this. We want to have lives that we know are useful. When we're growing up, we think, boy, I, I want to know what my purpose in life is. And boy, I sure hope it's useless. We don't say that. We want to have purpose. We want to be useful. We want to do right and good. We want to have lives that we know are useful, that will bear fruit that actually lasts. And that is not contrary to the perfect plan of God. So we can rejoice that God has given us purpose in life. In Philippians 3, Paul called his old purpose in life rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Here are some great purpose verses. Just thinking about some verses. You know, some people have a life verse or just go-to verses that help them to think through the big picture of motivation and why we do the things we do. These would be great verses to put to memory. Maybe some of them you already know. Uh, this one I said last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Uh, this is the verse that says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, it's our ambition, to please him. Whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And I think I told you last week, the way I think of that in my mind is dead or alive. Because that's the passage, at home means in heaven. Away means here. So I just think of it, what dead or alive, kind of like an old western. Dead or alive, I want to be pleasing to God. Of course, when we're dead, we're going to be very pleasing to God because our sin's going to be gone, right? Uh, then number two, another one would be 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, there isn't like clock in time for Christianity and then clock out time to go chill, right? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Of course, when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus responded. He said, the most important is, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That means all of you, right? That doesn't mean you have four parts with all of who you are. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So in everything I do, loving God, loving my neighbor. That's Mark 12, 29 through 31. Christian, you have a purpose for living. You have a purpose. God has appointed you to his service. And as you love him, love your neighbors, as you run everything you do, whether it's how you treat your spouse, your kiddos, your work, your work ethic, the way you interact with your co-workers, your neighbors, whatever it is you do, as you run everything you do through this grid of love and in an effort to please and glorify Him, you will live a life of purpose that will bear fruit which lasts through eternity. What a great purpose. And not only will our service bear eternal fruit, but the best part of our purpose is being with Christ Himself. Being with Jesus. Our greatest reward after running through the race that is this life is simply seeing Jesus. And I shouldn't even say simply. It's not a simple thing, is it? 
seeing Christ at the finish line. Heaven will be heaven because Jesus is there. Not because the streets are made of gold. As cool as that might be. Okay? But if there were streets of gold and a big huge mansion and a nice porch to sit on and, and rest and know Jesus, it would be no heaven. It wouldn't be heaven. Jesus gives us our purpose. All right, gift number four, forgiveness. Forgiveness. In verse 13, Paul recounts, he said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. A blasphemer is one who slanders God, speaking evil of him. And you can't, you can't speak evil of God without speaking falsehood. Because there is no evil in him. And we might say, well, you know, Paul was really a zealous guy and he was trying to do things for the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Jews and Israel and all that. How did Paul speak falsehood about God? How did he slander God? Well, perhaps one way that might be overlooked is the fact that Paul denied that Christ was the Son of God and that Christians were truly God's children. To say that Christ uh, was a liar and that he wasn't who he said he was, that's blaspheming God. To say that Christ is not the Savior is to blaspheme God. Does that make sense? So sometimes we think about um, the Jews of our day, of our time, people who are still uh, trying to follow God but are rejecting Jesus Christ as, as the Messiah. They're blaspheming. They're saying that Jesus is no God at all, that he's a false Messiah. Uh, we are saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but by him. Um, in Acts twenty six eleven, Paul shared with King Agrippa that he'd even tried to get Christians to blaspheme God. When Paul was persecuting the church before his conversion, he would have been trying to force them to recant, to recant their faith, to deny the deity of Christ, to deny him and reject him as Lord and Savior. That would have been asking them to blaspheme God. Uh, which brings up the second sin that Paul says here in First Timothy 1, the sin of being a persecutor. Remember last week, persecution takes the form of a verbal and or physical attacks against Christians. And Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He also confesses, this sounds very nefarious, he confesses to have having been an insolent opponent. Ooh, insolent. <laughs> Which means he had been driven by violence and contempt for others. Driven to mistreat them. Uh, in short, he was a bully. A terrible bully. Bent on hurting them. Bent on hurting the church. Bent on hurting the cause of Christ. And with these sins on Paul's record, amongst all the rest that he had committed in his life, Paul needed to be forgiven. Paul had a desperate need for forgiveness, as we all do. And when God forgave Paul, God chose to not hold Paul's sins against him. Forgiveness. When God forgives us, he chooses to not hold our sins against us. And he, he's God. He has all authority to bring us to judgment. And because he's also just, he must judge our sin. If God decided not to judge the sin, he would cease to be just. So God's choice to forgive us, it came at a great cost. 
Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ suffered the wrath that we deserve. God remains just, and our sin is paid for. So Christians, we are forgiven. Our sins cannot be held against us. They can't because they've already been held against Jesus Christ. Which brings us uh, to number five, gift number five, mercy. Mercy. Verse 13, Paul says, I received mercy. And mercy is the removal of the misery caused by our sin. In God's goodness to us through the blood of Christ, we do not get what we deserve. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Our Lord is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And because our God is all those things, especially with this gift, merciful, Christians, we want to fall into into his hands. Not into our own. That would have been a bad mistake. We want to fall into his hands. Because if we did not, we would not be able to enjoy his mercy and would therefore remain in our miserable condition. We cannot work our way out of misery. To try to do such a thing would only result in more misery. That's why in order to receive this gift of mercy, we also need this next gift, and that gift is faith. In verse 14, Paul declares that God's mercy was necessitated because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for him with first the faith. And we might say, oh, but wait a minute. I thought you had to have faith to receive all these gifts. Well, that's true, right? You have to have faith to receive these gifts. But if faith was something that we had to strive to muster up in ourselves, I believe, I believe, I believe. You're thinking like a Santa Claus movie or something like, I believe, I believe. If we had to do that ourselves, then salvation would cease to be a gift, a gift of grace. Even our mustering of our energies to have faith would be a work of our own. It turns out even faith itself is a gift. In verses I said that we're going to read this later, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. In this verse, it teaches us this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. And we see that verse, grace by grace you've been saved through faith. There's the faith. And this is not your own doing. What's this? It is the gift. What is it? What is the gift? It's not a result of works. So what is this gift? And in this verse, grace and gift are being used synonymously. They mean the same. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not something we've deserved. It's not something we've earned, not something we've worked for. It's something that's given to you, right? It's a gift. Grace, gift. These are the same thing. These are the same thing. So then what is the gracious gift we receive that is not a result of our works? It's faith. Wayne Grudem defines faith as trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. Remember, Romans 3 teaches us no one seeks for God. 
Uh, dead things don't figure out how to wake up. Dead things don't lie in the grave and think, think at all. Or think about, how could I maybe get myself out of this predicament? They're dead. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus taught Nicodemus that the, the spirit or the wind blows where it wishes, referring to the spirit of God. Christians, even your faith, which you have placed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, is a gift from God. There is absolutely no ground for boasting, then, is there? Uh, just like it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Gift number 7, love. Love. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Love is God sacrificially giving of himself for our benefit. That's how God loved us. You know Romans 5.8? I kind of chuckle when I even typed this. Have you memorized that verse yet, church? Not because you've gone home and and put it on a note card or anything, but because I think I quote it to you nearly every Sunday, okay? God shows his love for us. Love on display. Love defined. Love given. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has gifted us with his love by dying in our place, taking the just penalty of our sin on himself so that we could have mercy, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have purpose, all of these gifts. This is God's love for us. And because we know this love, we are able to truly love him and others. Remember, it's not the I love pizza kind of love or I love video games or I love opening presents on Christmas morning kind of love. It is not a you scratch my back, then I'll think about scratching yours. Not that kind of love. That is no love at all. First John four nineteen says that we love, we sacrificially give of ourselves for the benefit of others because he first loved us. This is built into us. God gifted us with love and he gifts us with the ability to love others. So love. Gift number eight is our salvation. Salvation. Verse 15. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why do we celebrate this Christmas? Because Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Jesus' first advent was not for the purpose of judgment. That's coming His first advent was not for the purpose of judgment, but for rescue from judgment. Jesus came to save sinners. Uh, He said this in John 12, 46 and 47. Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Salvation is God's rescue of believers from the curse of their sin and restoring them to fellowship with himself. Uh, The idea of rescue, think of a a lifeguard who goes out to sea to go take somebody who's maybe been caught in the waves, caught in the undertow, losing their strength. That lifeguard goes out them and tries to grab them up. And if that person struggles and tries to help, what happens? They both go down. That person who needs saving is not going to help themselves. They need to be rescued. Jesus is our rescuer. 
And our salvation also brings not just rescue, but also restoration. Rescue and restoration. God's gift to us through Christ. Gift number nine is humility. Humility. In verse 15, this is the verse that where Paul calls himself the foremost of sinners whom Christ came to save. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Paul thought, didn't he? Paul thought he was pretty hot stuff until he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He thought he was pretty hot stuff until he was confronted with Jesus. And when he did, when he saw Jesus, he fell to the ground and called Jesus his Lord. And Paul wasn't a perfect guy after that either. Uh, we, we might think highly of Paul, but he wasn't a perfect guy. He, he needed that thorn in the flesh to remind him of his weakness. Even when we're serving the Lord and seeing fruit, we can tend toward thinking that it was all because of us. Oh, I am a pretty good uh, missionary. I am a pretty good speaker. Man, I, I share the gospel really well with people. And when I do it, people get saved, not when other people do it. We can start thinking, boy, I'm pretty special. Paul needed a thorn in the flesh to remind him of his weakness. We think we're the ones with the power to make things effective, but any strength that we have, where does it come from? It's from him. It's of his grace. Any righteousness we have is from him. Victories that we have are from him. We, we didn't need a boost to get righteous with God. We didn't need a special nudge to get us over the hump and then we'll take it from there to be satisfying, pleasing, and righteousness to him. We didn't also, we didn't need reassurance, reassurance uh, to dig down deep inside, uh, like a, a, a life coach saying, you can do it. Dig down deep. Look deep into your heart. There's good in there. You can do this. You've got this. No, we don't. No, we don't. We needed rescue. And God gifts us with the awareness of our desperate need. God gifts us with an awareness of our depravity, where all we have left to do then is to cry out for salvation and then rest in his salvation. And continuing in that humility, we bow to our king and serve him in gratitude and love. The poor in spirit have purpose. The poor in spirit will have the kingdom. So in this context today, kind of get to make up my own special definition for humility in this context. So we'll define humility as our awareness of our desperate need of rescue, which results in happy devotion to our king. I think the idea of submitting to somebody else, that requires humility. If we are not humble, we won't want a Lord over us. But God's gift to us in this humility allows us to be happily devoted to our king. Happiness in following Jesus. This is a gift. We don't come to this awareness on our own. God has to reveal this to us as he reveals to us himself. When Paul saw Jesus, when Paul saw Jesus for the first time ever, Paul saw himself in truth. And humility followed close behind. Okay, gift number 10, testimony. God has given us a testimony. Verse 16, he said, Paul wrote, uh, but I received mercy for this reason. 
that in me, as the foremost, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, especially since we just talked about humility, does it sound like Paul's bragging about how far he's come along in that verse? I say, well, no, not not at all. What's he doing? This testimony. He's telling us how amazing God is. That's what he's doing. Uh, We are saved in order to glorify God by displaying his attributes at work in us. It glorifies him and it results in also pointing other people to Jesus. Helping other brothers and sisters to grow. This is one of the purposes that God has given us. We are, we are not just uh, saved to keep us out of hell and to get us into heaven, as great as that is. But our participation in the working of God is ultimately for his glory. And it is used, not just for us, but for the good of others. For the good of others. Our salvation, our sanctification, the change in our lives, it all serves to display the goodness of God. As we'll see uh, next week when we jump back into Matthew 5, we are to serve as salt and light in this world. So that when people see us, they see God at work. God has gifted us with this testimony. uh, The great privilege of displaying the goodness of God to others through our changed and changing lives. And, And let me encourage you. Some of you haven't been persecutors of the church, right? Some of you haven't, haven't done that. You haven't been persecutors of the church. And, and maybe you're a little bummed that you don't have a testimony as cool as the Apostle Paul's. You know what I mean? Sometimes we hear testimonies and we think, oh, that person's testimony is so amazing. I wish my testimony was that great. Now come on, right? You might say, oh, I wasn't the head of a motorcycle gang or like the mafia or anything. Listen, If the Lord saved you even at a young age and you've never sinned in any ways that some people might consider an amazing testimony, you have an amazing testimony. You do. You have an amazing testimony. And if God wanted you to have Paul's amazing testimony, then you'd have it. But he didn't. He wanted Paul to have Paul's testimony and he wants you to have your amazing testimony. He wanted you to display his goodness that way through the testimony that he's gifted to you. And and is this true? We have all fallen short. We all needed rescue. Some of us have just sinned in ways that are more culturally acceptable than others. And so being made aware of our depravity when everyone around you thinks you're the greatest, that's a great work of God's grace right there. When we think we didn't need much, and then all of a sudden God helped us to realize, made us realize by his grace that we needed everything, that's a great testimony. A testimony of God's grace. God has gifted us all with a testimony of his glorious attributes. And then last, but not least at all, Gift number 11. With all these other gifts being considered, Paul then gives this one more as he exemplifies Christ, this gift of worship. Worship 
is a gift that God gives to us. It's not just something that he has to have so you'd better do it. It is a gift that we receive. Verse 17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Worship is when we ascribe to God his worth. We communicate in some way who he is and what he means to us. So we can worship in song. We can worship in prayer. We worship God in our service, in our conversations, in our relationships, in our work ethic. Just even being honest, clocking in and clocking out of work. All the things that we do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All of this shows, displays, communicates the worth of God in our lives. It's worship. When God truly holds his rightful place in our hearts, everything we say, think, and do is tied to our worship of him. And God's worthy of that worship. In Paul's worship here in verse 17, he gives us a few reasons God is worthy of worship. He says that he's eternal, the king of the ages. God's eternal. He is the king of all times. The Bible calls him the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You know, God didn't look at his watch one day and go, boy, I'm almost late. I better create everything. That's not how that worked. God created time. He exists outside of it. He is the maker of time itself. So he's not constrained by it. When Jesus said in in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He could just as easily have said after the judgment, after the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, I am. God is immortal. He, he, he will never, can never die. He will never decay, never wane. He doesn't tire. God is invisible. We know God because he has revealed himself to us. Remember Romans 3, no one seeks God. We wouldn't have even looked for him. He's revealed himself to us. Psalm 19 teaches us that God has revealed himself to us in creation. In Romans 1, it says that his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived, revealed to all through creation. He has revealed himself uh, to us, especially through his word. Remember, when we look and see Jesus for who he is, we see who we are and we're changed. Another great reason to get after reading our Bibles this year so we can see God as he's revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, God the Father is also revealed to us through Christ. John 1.18, when John wrote in the beginning of this gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God. Then it says, the only God, meaning Jesus Christ, God the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Remember, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul also calls God the only God. There is no other God. No other God. There is no other to worship. All other worship is out of place. It's wasted. All other worship is wasted on things that are not God's. We kind of talked about that last week with Ephesus, didn't we, in Acts 19. Uh, But people worship false gods and and worship in false religions. That's obviously wasted worship. It only brings more misery, not good. People also ascribe worth to other human beings, don't we? Fearing man. Man changing how we act, uh, changing how we speak, changing maybe some decisions of, yes, we would do this, no, we wouldn't do that, changing our countenance even, as we might see fit to be pleasing to whomever we regard 
as worthy in hopes maybe that they'll give us some praise. This is wasted worship. Wasted worship. There are no other gods. There is only one worthy of our worship. Psalm 102, 25 through 27 says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth. God, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. And they will perish. But you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You you change them like a raiment, like changing your clothes. And they pass away. But God, you are the same. God never changes in all eternity. Never. And it says, your years have no end. And from this verse in 1 Timothy, Walter Chambers Smith, he wrote these words of worship. Immortal, invisible, God only, wise. In light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. So here's the gift. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And if we have our fullest joy when we have it in him. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the immortal, invisible, in light, inaccessible God, the only God, revealed himself to us? Through Jesus Christ, through his word, in his creation. Worship is a gift. It's a gift. We know to worship, to do it at all. We are enabled to worship with sincere hearts. Not just doing lip service, but in sincerity. We see God and respond with appropriate praise. All of this by the grace of God. God has revealed himself to us. Revealed ourselves to us. Rescued us from our sin. And freed us to enjoy him forever. So here are all these gifts which we've been given. We have strength. We have justification and sanctification. We have purpose for living. We have forgiveness. Our sins will not be held against us. We have mercy. God has taken away our misery. We have faith, belief. We have love and are able to give love. We have salvation. God has rescued us. We have been given humility that we might be happy to serve our king. We have a testimony to display his goodness and his attributes. And we can worship and delight in him forever. And all of these gifts, being gifts, are entirely of God's grace. Every one of these gifts, too, is is wrapped up in the gift, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there is no gift more worthy of our wonder, of our amazement. As we would unwrap this gift and look at our Savior, may we be struck with the awe and the wonder of a child who has unwrapped a present that far exceeds their wildest hopes and dreams. Our God is truly gracious. Let's pray together and thank him for these wonderful gifts that he's given to us in Christ. Father, we do thank you.
we haven't earned any of this. These gifts are not things that we could have put together on our own, nor would we even have wanted to. And you've given us eternal joy. God, where we, where we don't see it, where we are distracted by the, the hustle and bustle of this world and the, the battle of the desires in our hearts, God, we pray for your grace that we would look at these gifts and look at this great gift giver that you are and be in awe of you. Be amazed by you. Be brought to the worship of you. God, we thank you that as we would do this, you will change us. You will conform us to the image of Christ. And we will have joy in following Jesus. So Lord, please use us in this way. Give us this purpose. Fulfill this purpose in us. And we pray this would all be to your glory, honor, and praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.